Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week our year is 1943, and we'll be talking about A Chess Story by Stefan Zweig. I'll be talking with Isaac Butler and Lear Schneerson. Isaac, you have heard many times in this podcast before, he is the author of The Method, How 20th Century Learned to Act, and is the co-host of the Working Podcast on Slate. Lear Schneerson writes... Fiction and nonfiction, he teaches writing at New York University and plays guitar in a band called Sarah Durning and the Fun Sisters. That's cool. Um, I have to give a disclaimer that I've only done once before on Satchel Page episode. Um, I found this story so affecting and honestly upsetting. I found it hard to talk about. I couldn't really form words and sentences as well as I would hope to as a podcast host. Um, Isaac and Lear did better. I still think you should listen to us, but um, I apologize for that. One of the questions that we will talk about is whether the story itself or the surrounding information is what makes it so unsettling. I think the story itself is the source of this feeling, but listeners, if you read it or if you have read it, please write to us and say what you think. Um, The plot starts with a narrator describing a trip on a ship. One of the other passengers is a chess savant who, according to the story, has no capacity for analysis or abstract thought. He just wins chess games, and he's an international champion, um, but he's kind of a brute. His name is Chantovic. Um, The narrator is curious about this guy and plays chess with him. And just as the narrator is about to make a move that he thinks is going to, you know, set him up to win the game. A stranger stops him and explains that the move will allow Chantovic to win several moves into the future. Um, With the stranger's help, the game ends in a draw. Um, The narrator is now curious about the stranger, Dr. B. And Dr. B says that he has never played chess seriously, um, not at all since he was a child, but he used to be a banker in Austria, and when the Nazis came to power, they wanted to know... um, what he knew about the royalists' money, and so they imprisoned him in a hotel room for months, alone except for this questioning. Um, And he managed to steal a book of famous chess games, which he memorized, um, to keep his sanity, just so he had something to think about. Uh, He would play chess games against himself in his mind, playing both sides. Um, But dividing his mind like that led to kind of psychotic break, Um, combined with the solitude, uh, and he was taken to a hospital and eventually released. 
The psychiatrist who cared for him at the hospital said that he could play one more game of chess in his life, and if he played another beyond that, he would go mad permanently. Um, and so the narrator and Dr. B agree that uh, Dr. B will play that one first and last chess game with Chentovic, uh, and Dr. B wins. And Chentovic isn't used to losing chess games, and he wants to play another. And Dr. B agrees, but Chentovic is playing extremely slowly, like each, each move he takes, you know, a long time to make each move. Um, and Dr. B begins to hallucinate where the chess pieces are um, with his predictions for where they'll be in the future, and he loses his grip on reality. And they don't finish the game, and the story ends quite abruptly. And there are many questions about this story, and we'll discuss them all, or many of them, in our conversation. Here we go. So, you guys both independently suggested that I should read this story. I think, Isaac, you suggested it first by maybe like a matter of hours. Um, why were you reading Vig? What, like, why was this the story? Um, I was reading Zweig because I had just seen Tom Stoppard's Leopoldstadt on Broadway, which is about um, turn of the century, turn of the last century, um, uh, assimilated Austrian Jews. And it's very much about that culture and then about how that culture is destroyed by the Nazis. Um, and uh, I had just remembered that I had always meant <laughs> to to read work by the you know the 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 austrian jewish writers of that period like joseph roth and stuff like that and so um i was at my local bookstore and the one they had was collected novellas of stefan zweig the pushkin press edition um which is a lovely little paperback and i picked it up and i really had no expectations i knew very little about his writing i just picked it up and took it on a little weekend getaway we we did and uh, the first one I read was actually his novella Burning Secret. And I was just blown away. I was like, this is this is fucking incredible writing. I was just so entranced by it. You know, even in translation, I just felt so compelled to keep reading it and that it was so fascinating and multi-layered and beautiful and and dense. Um, you know, um, and so I just made my way through that collection. And the second one was Chess Story. And so I think when you and I were talking about Zweig, I was like, oh yeah, you should definitely read him. You'd really dig him. I, you know, Chess Story is often the one that people start with was the thing that I learned was it's often like the gateway. Um, and then I was uh happy that you were super into it. <laughs> um yeah. So, okay. I just, I wanted to say a thing about that readable quality just for, for listeners. I think that it's like the way I, I found it readable was um, in, it's like, it really does not feel like a 20th century author. It feels like, like Oscar Wilde or something. It feels late 19th century to me. Um, and part of what to me felt late 19th century, like almost like Hans Christian Andersen, like the, those, it's like, he just lays everything out. Everything you need to yeah. know, he's going to tell you right up front. He's going to tell you, <laughs> um, he's not going to leave you guessing. You don't have to, um, you don't have to like try to unpick any implication. It's like, he just tells you, here are the good looking people. Here are the rich people. You know, here's <laughs> yeah. basically how they're all going to interact. And then you kind of you watch it and then he'll, you know, withhold some piece of information that will be the twist. 
at the end. Right, but the, th- but the thing that the the thing that makes it feel 20th century on top of that, that's the weird thing is that there's like a marriage of 19th and 20th going on here is um, how influenced he was by Freud, um, oh. uh, who he was eventually friends with. And so even in the stuff written before they met, because if I remember correctly, Burning Secrets written before they met, Chess Stories written after they met. But like you can tell why they became friends, because it's always like, here's this roiling undercurrent. Oh, you know, like sure. I'm going to show you this scene, and then there's this huge roiling undercurrent that that you know is going on, and so um, so yeah, I think there's something about it. It's like a a modern psychology put into the 19th century literary form, and there's something about that that's just um really delicious to me. I really want to circle back to Freud, but I just wanted to say like I think that some of why he fell out of fashion so hard is because of that sort of 19th century feeling to it. This is this is just my belief, but we'll, I'm sure, talk about it more. Um, but Lior, I wanted to hear more about your Zweig backstory. Huh. Well, this, I'm afraid this will be disappointing. First of all, because I don't remember recommending this story to you. <laughs> it may have happened, but I don't remember it happening. Transcript. I remember it was in writing. Um, I, I remember talking about Zweig because I, I had just, uh, I had just been reading, or I'm still reading Henry Kissinger's early book about Prince Metternich, and uh, you know became interested in Austria and sort of the the kind of um, the sort of worldview that you know that might inflect both uh, Austrian literature, if there's such a thing in the late 19th, early 20th, 20th centuries, and also Austrian ideas of um, international relations. And so I was thinking about uh, Zweig in terms of <laughs> Kissinger on Metternich, and was remembering uh, having read these novellas. I also have I have the same or had the same book Isaac that you have, um, pl- like plowing through that book about five years ago, and uh, being very impressed by the storytelling, and then not thinking about it for five years. And I'm curious, uh, like maybe I'm representing the 20th century itself, and he is. He has fallen out of fashion in my mind after having read him once. Um, <laughs> but I really want to know a. I want to know why that happened, kind of. And so I was, you know, interested in reading this story again, and uh, just kind of getting a sense of both what you know what's so intriguing about the storytelling, and then what you know what's missing in it. And I know that this book or this story, I can't imagine it's a key to everything, just because it it like has a place as the last one. And I don't know what his, um, you know, what his editorial process was, or whether he would have expected, like he sent the manuscript to his publishers, and then the next day he killed himself. And so I don't know whether he ordinarily had an editorial process that involved some give and take with somebody, whether the story could have been edited, uh, whether it would, you know, whether it would have gone through any readership before being published. Um, But um, I don't know. It it's it part of the intrigue, the continuing intrigue is um the sense of incompleteness, the feeling that it is not finished. Um and that I mean I, there's lots of things I'd like to talk about. That's one of them. The the 19th centuryness, I felt that as well. What what I felt and and it was arresting to me a little bit was um a feeling of uh i don't know if you guys remember um garfield minus garfield love garfield yeah. minus this, garfield. Uh, this this sort of felt like dostoevsky minus dostoevsky like we have a narrator 
who says up front that he's fascinated by monomaniacal types. And then we hardly ever hear about that again. Like this narrator, I don't know what he's there for. Um, he sets himself up as somebody who's going to be, you know, maybe not, maybe doesn't consistently set this up or not very strongly, but there's at least a gesture towards setting up the narrator as somebody who's going to be interesting as a storyteller. And it only kind of emerges at the end when he kind of cuts the story off. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, you cut this down later, but he makes this no, claim that he's interested in monomaniacal personalities. And then at the end of the story, once we have like the thing that happened, he just kind of steps away. We never hear him editorialize or give his take as a, as a as a kind of maniac about mono, monomania, monomania yeah, about monomania. We never hear like we never hear his take on it. It's, it's like so it's odd. It's 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 sort of like really that stage he told from the side. Sorry. Oh, I just I agree with you. I think it really is part of that feeling of incompleteness or um, it does stand out from like his other stories, you know, in this collection that are a lot more sort of complete uh, feeling like they're more sewn up. Do you, do you think that Isaac, like that there's. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, let's see. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, I, I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me before, but yes, burning secret ends with this sort of incredible flash forward. Uh, and it's last it's last sentence is sort of this wild flash forward to the rest of the the young child who's been observing everything's life. And um fear and confusion, those are two different those are two different novellas. Both have like real endings. Fear, actually, the ending feels kind of weirdly undergraduate to me. It feels very like almost cutesy in its twist. And then confusion, I think, is is which also has a little flash forward at the end, right? Where the yeah. young man says to the tutor, you know, now I've I'm an old man and I'm married and I have two kids, but I've never loved anyone as much as I as I loved him. Um and then, um, and this one does end, it does end super abruptly, but it does also have that moment where the narrator tells you the future really fast, which he likes doing at the end, which is, um, that, uh, uh, you know, our, our monomaniac will never touch a chessboard again. He's mm -hmm. like, I knew that he would never touch a chessboard again, but yes, it does have this kind of, um, slamming the door shut feeling enter ending right whereas the other ones are kind of actually opening a bunch of windows into the future and here it's just like kaboom it's over which yeah. does feel i mean it's hard not to read the fact that he was about to kill himself into that ending right that that well, the abruptness of the ending is sort of um so my experience of reading this story i had read confusion first as you know isaac um yeah. because it was like relevant to my interests otherwise um, and I was, I sort of had this feeling of like, okay, I'm going to read this sort of like almost like sing-songy 19th century, pleasurable, not difficult kind of story. Um, and, and then the, the Nazis show up and I was like, okay, that's weird. You know? And then I, <laughs> I was in the subway. I've been reading a lot of super disturbing stuff on the subway, as you both know, I guess. Um, and I keep having this feeling that like if anyone looks over at a page of what I'm reading, they're gonna like faint because you know, like I don't want to like disturb people by the horrifying stuff I've been reading on the subway. But um, but this was the one that gave me like like I don't know, goosebumps. It it was eerie. Like there's something very eerie about the way the story turns once 
this guy is like, oh, well, I used to be a banker. And then, you know, the Nazis show up and you're kind of like, okay, it's like Nazis showing up in the little match girl or something. It's like that. It, it seems almost like a category error. And then that's, um, it, it, it felt like the way that he set up this idea that the doctors have told you, you can win one more game of chess, but then you lose. Um, it, like you, the first game you win, the second game you lose. Um, like I then did all this reading on Zweig's life because I was like, this feels like a really haunting and powerful setup that is giving me this eerie feeling. Um, but like, I don't think it's a real thing in real life. Like, even though there are stories about people going mad from playing chess, I don't think there's such a thing as you can, you can win one game, but then you will go mad permanently if you play a second game that feels like right. fairy tale logic, you know? Um, but it also feels like, um, like it's his actual, his reasoning, it's his life. Like he escaped from the Nazis in 1934. And even though he had this, he was like, had this very international life before then in Europe, um, being in exile really, really messed him up. He really hated it. And, um, and then also in that, um, in that New Yorker profile by Leo Carey from 2012, um, it said that also the, the fascists were gaining power in Brazil when he killed himself also. Like, I think that he would mm -hmm. be very right to be freaked out by this circumstance. And I think that that feeling that he had sort of cheated death once, but he wasn't going to do it again. Um, I don't know. It, it felt, I guess, Freudian, like it's like he's telling you something purely symbolically that doesn't have a real life. God, no, I'm saying this wrong. It's like, it doesn't make sense in story logic. It only makes sense in emotional logic. Does that make yeah, sense? I, totally. I feel like there, like this, the story in general has, has some inexplicable things happening um, that, that don't make sense in story logic and they don't, they don't make sense in in sort of real life logic exactly um, like the i you know there's to me it's like it's sort of like dominoes um like i it's well okay so the center of it seems to me um like the the kind of um the innovation of it the kind of heart of the story seems to me and i wonder if you all agree with this um the uh the the like the the double-mindedness of um of uh the lawyer dr b yeah if that's what his real name is um that like the the kind of the sort of haunting center of it for me is 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 the like the the terror of of the capacity to be of two minds to play both black and white where black and black doesn't know white's intentions and white doesn't know black's intentions um and i feel like uh a lot of the rest of the story kind of falls away uh in terms of importance for instance chintovic like we could we don't i, I don't think we'll we, we're probably not going to spend more than 30 seconds to, i mean maybe but i can easily imagine a discussion of this book going real deep and never touching chintovic 
he seems just like a kind of cipher and maybe that's intentional it seemed if anything that you know you can't really read him as a character because it doesn't make sense to have a, a somebody who can be a chess grandmaster who's incapable of thinking abstractly or hold, or incapable of holding a game in his head it just it doesn't it just doesn't compute i mean maybe it does for me it doesn't compute uh so i'm tempted so it seems like we should read him allegorically if anything and if we read him allegorically he seems maybe you know to to represent the the horde like the the deculturalization the barbarization yeah. of um spike's homeland um to the point where like you know i'm thinking of possible ways to for us to read it allegorically in our generation like it's you know it could be an it could be deep blue it could be an allegory for the the disappearance of of, of culture from the game like all the the paranoia that people have about ai like deep blue and alpha go is like you know we don't understand how these things play they play outside of culture they play outside of story they have no humor um like that's what i get from chentovic he seems like a machine and or like he seems to represent the the dread of the machine what do you think I yeah think? yeah no i agree i mean this is the thing like you have a character who is sort of um, brutal and purely rational and incapable of thinking abstractly. And then you have another character who is driven insane by his capacity to think abstractly. Like yeah. the story is inviting you to see them as, you know, dialectically opposed symbols of entire ways of life. Right. I mean, like the book, the the story is inviting that reading. It's not a, a, a not that you were arguing that it was a flaw or anything, but it's not a flaw in the story. It's like very clearly yeah. setting you up to think that just as you have white versus black opposed on a, chessboard and 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 blah 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 um chentovich's complete lack of mercy is i think really fascinating you know that he's like a i mean he really is like a barbarian you know what i mean like like in the way they describe him as he's like this i mean this is almost that this is kind of the dostoevsky thing he's like the village simpleton who is like a brute and happens to be brilliant at chess for this fluke reason you know oh, um, like smirjikov as a chess player so yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Like, whoa. Yeah, exactly. No, it does feel very, you know, it, it's, it, I mean, I, another thing that I should say that's interesting about Zweig is the 19th century he's pulling from isn't purely an English 19th century literature, right? It's, it's, well, it it, like, like, all, right? Like, right. No, no, no. But yeah. I'm just saying it's like there are certain kinds of when you say, oh, it, it sounds 19th century, your immediate association might be English 19th century literature, but that's not actually the traditions he's really pulling on in a lot of ways. Um, but, um, anyway, back to, back to, back to Chentovich. See, you said we weren't going to talk about him and now because you brought him up, we're going to talk about him a lot. Um, it's self-defeating much like trying to play 10 chess games simultaneously in your mind. Um, no, but I mean, yes, he doesn't, there's a weird thing where it's like, you know, if you, so then once you're invited to think about him allegorically and you're invited to think about him and Dr. B allegorically, then it's like, well, what do you do with the Nazi section? Right. And then if you're thinking about the Nazi section, it's like, well, what do you do about the allegory? You know, it, 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 um, shifts around on you a lot, which I think is part of its power. Just simply like that, that it's that. There isn't a simple interpretation of it. But it's interesting too, because like I, absolutely right, and the it feels like the Nazis o open it out beyond the kind of sh sort of closed door meaning system of allegory. But it's interesting too because you know in the moment of publication we didn't know what the allegory of Nazis was. Like we didn't no. know what Nazis were supposed to do, 
And we also have the opening out of um, Zweig's biography. And we have these two kind of openings out, the, these kind of um, indeterminable variables that keep the story from that keep the story able to escape um, from from kind of deterministic readings. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's it's interesting too because they're both accidentals. Like those aren't inscribed. They uh, well, it's possible. Certainly with the with the biography and maybe with the Nazi thing, but they're not inscribed into the story as escape hatches. They're just circumstances of its composition. Well, and so, like, uh, one tiny little thing. Okay, sure. Okay, I made a. Um, I was talking with a German friend of mine last night about you know I was asking her, "Have you read this thing?" And she's like, "Oh yeah, Schach novella. Everybody reads that in high school." Mm. And I said, you know, I was like, oh, is that, you know, that's the only Zweig. She's like, yeah, we, nobody really reads, nobody reads Zweig, but everybody reads Schach novella in high school. And I was like, why? And she's like, you know, I can't remember. And she says, um, it's definitely something to do with the war. And then she says, but like every, like so much of our education had to do with the war. It's hard to distinguish what one thing was about as opposed to the other. So it's like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, this is like the most widely known work by Zweig right now, right? It's what people read. If they read him, it's an introduction. Everybody in Germany reads him in high school, but it's not his most complete work. It's probably not his best work, but it's got these openings uh, from biography and from the historical context that um, I, I, and I, I think not in a, in a bad way, make the story more readable or make it more, um, uh, you know, uh, compelling. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think that it feels like I think that, that the openness to interpretation and to um to reading into it, I think makes it seem more just more interesting. Like there's something to think about when you know, like more than a week after you finish reading it. Um but I I think that the I think the thing that really interested me about it is that it's uh, I think that it's in the story. The Nazi interpretation is in the story to me. Um, and I think that it's like before there were any tropes and before there was explicit knowledge of what Nazis were doing, like he didn't know what they were doing necessarily. He just knew that they had banned all his books and then they'd come to his house and he had to escape. Um this is my understanding of how much he would have known at this point. Um, and, you know, obviously a world war. Um, he knew that. Uh, but he didn't know all the details of what's going on in concentration camps. Um, and he's not trying to persuade anyone. It's not didactic at all um, about, like, um, I don't know, like obviously so much Holocaust literature now has to be didactic in some way. It has to like show that something is, you know, in this moral relation to that. But this feels like he's an adult talking about his own experiences of a certain kind of psychological warfare that the Nazis, like the effect that they had on him, which is that once once he's like gone up against this brute that just wants to kill him and silence, you know, ban his work and ruin his life 
ruin his his you know unified cosmopolitan um just interesting europe that everything that he loves they want to just smash and destroy um i just think it's interesting how he uses chess as this thing like he has to permanently play against himself he's permanently trying to anticipate their next move and but he's playing against his own like a person who has his same intelligence but they're just brutes like the actual opponent is a brute but the one who drives him mad is himself and that it seems like it's kind of a metaphor that um I don't know, people on Twitter use it a lot in Trump discussions. They're like, oh, is he playing like five-dimensional wizard chess or is he just a brute, you know? And I was like, I don't think that people are drawing that analogy from this story. I think that they're independent. Oh, isn't it from Star Trek? I think it's from Star Trek, actually. Well, okay. (laughs) Multi-dimensional chess is a thing. They they have chess on like stacked boards and it's like the quartal. It makes no sense, but it's a thing that shows up in Star Trek. I think the multi-dimensional part of the chess, but I think the idea that you're supposed to think like four moves ahead and that they're doing so. Oh, right. Yeah. Like the, the idea of chess as what you're doing when you're playing against an enemy that just kind of wants to obliterate you and your whole culture. Um, I think there's something really, really canny about the way he sets this up, where it's not that Dr. B is driven mad by an opponent who is better at chess. He's driven mad by his own divided mind that he can never stop anticipating the next move. That a person could play against right, him. Right, because what, what Chentovich does is he slows down the rate of play. He slows down, uh, he takes the maximum amount of time between moves he's allowed. Something Rafael Nadal does in his, to his opponents in tennis, I should note, uh, which is a sort of like a chess game. And um, uh, in that space, because Dr. B is actually winning so handily in a weird way, Dr. B's mind gets away from him because he gets bored and he starts plotting out, you know, uh, game upon game upon game, like everything that could possibly happen as a result of these moves and it, and it, and it moves him into a kind of mania. Part of what I also found fascinating about that is Catherine and I have a friend who um, shall remain nameless, although he'll get a kick out of this, I hope, who used to be a, a chess enthusiast. His early online message board uh, uh, pseudonym was Chess Mind. And uh, uh, he was telling us that one of the issues with like following chess now, and I thought this was fascinating because to me, this is one way that the, the novella is actually prophetic, is that once you get to a certain level of, of mastery of chess now, this is a, a recent sort of thing um, to some extent. The the grandmasters have, they know ev- like each move doesn't have any integrity of its own. It's like a symbol. Do you know what I mean? Like they know off of each move, every possible move that could be made in response and every move that could be made in response on, 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 on until you get to stalemate or checkmate or whatever. And so like the game sort of don't matter on some level, like, like they've lost some important thing because everyone knows every strategy, Um, which I thought was a weird, like what? Just everyone's overtrained. Would you? Everyone's so overtrained that it's like you know, if I move my pawn out, you're like, oh, he's either doing a 
sleeping gleeful or, uh, you know, a, a night's roundabout. Okay. I'm going to, you know, and it just, it just, um, so I thought that was interesting that that actually is what happens to Dr. B when he's sitting in his hotel room prison, um, trying to keep his sanity, uh, that, that he does the thing that is actually supposedly made contemporary chess kind of unwatchable. Is contemporary chess like this uh, now because we have so much information at our disposal? I don't know. It... I'd have to ask Chess Mind about this, uh, uh, but I remember him telling me at some point this uh, this this fact, maybe factoid. It might not be a hundred percent true, but um, I don't know because I don't I don't actually follow chess. Uh, the only chess I play is against my uh, my eight year old daughter. Cool, because well, it like that makes me it makes me wonder. I mean, because this. Just because, of, I mean, because of all this and also because of the sometime translation of this as the royal game, it makes me wonder what chess is for, at least in this in the story. There's a couple of explanations. I think the first one was that it helps people, you know, while away the time. Um, right. It kind of gives structure to, to the time of boredom, which makes sense, you know, in terms of the story. And it occurs to me that, um, it occurred to me today that, like there's no like the, it's not a royal game for either of them and i may be repeating something that's already been said but neither of them is is enjoying the game no there's no love like, in this match for either of them or no capacity for for love of the game from either of the players um and i i wonder like are where like what is what is it what is is there is chess supposed to be for something right. else? What well, is it? This, like? this is what he says in this, the, you know, the narrator who I think is sort of Zweig is softly poking fun at the narrator um, throughout, you know, uh, uh, and one of them is this passage about chess where he says, from my own experience, I knew well the mysterious attraction of the royal game, the singularity among the pastimes men have invented, which steps magnificently out from under the tyranny of chance to award its laurels only to the intellect, or rather to a particular form of intellectual ability. But aren't we guilty of being insultingly disparaging if we refer to chess as a game? Is it not also a science, an art, poised between one and the other like Muhammad's coffin between heaven and earth? I can't even read this without laughing. Yeah. A unique synthesis of all opposites, ancient and yet always new, mechanical in its structure, yet animated only by the imagination, limited to a geometrically petrified space, yet unlimited in its permutations, always developing, yet ever sterile, a logic with no result, a mathematics without calculations, an art without works, an architecture without materials, which has nevertheless proved more lasting in its form and history than any works or books, the only game that belongs in every era and among every people of which no one knows what God brought it to earth to kill boredom, sharpen the wits and taught in the spirit. Where is its beginning and where its end? That's amazing, right? Because at the end, he, there's no editorializing at all. He's speechless yeah. because he's so disappointed, maybe, by having like chess shown to him as nothing but terror of the past on the one hand and like dread of the present in the future on the other like the and, and chentovich's response is to everything he's just seen is to just be like oh that's a pity he was a pretty good chess player yeah <laughs> you <Yeah>. know <laughs> for a, what is it what does he say um for, for a, a dilettante for, for, for a, a dilettante yeah yeah which is um, just can you imagine and that's the last the last words of fiction that, that this writer ever wrote right so um it isn't like zweig didn't call it the royal game that's the translator 
that right. translated it. Um, but I was thinking that the royal game, it's like it's the, the, the royal game is trying to outwit your fascist enemies. The, the royal mm. game is thinking about politics. And, of course, Dr. B is a royalist. Yeah. And he's a royalist. Exactly. So I, I think that, like, in that way, the, the idea that there's that it's absolutely joyless, it's motivated entirely by dread of the past, refighting a battle that already is over, um, and kind of, like, grim determination in the present. Like, I don't know how you'd describe, like, really any of any of them like I th I'm thinking of the narrator also as one of the people who's part of this because he kind of sees this chess master uh Chantovich, and he's like um oh I wonder what his deal is I want to kind of crack his mind like a nut and open it up and see what's going on in there and that's why ah. he's watching these games in the first place and I feel like that's another part of this whole situation is like just kind of idle curiosity that turns into a kind of driving desire to dominate yeah it's he's the 19th century like they let him on the boat he's the 19th century <laughs> mediocrity on the boat right now he sees like the two faces of the 20th and he's like uh oh <laughs> yeah this doesn't look good uh yeah and it is amazing how that inquiry you know you're right Catherine. that like if you don't i knew nothing about this story before reading it i mean i knew it was famous and it has the word chess in it and so i assumed it was going to be about chess um and then everything about it after that was a surprise like they're on a ship from new york to buenos aires that's fascinating to me you know and then but when the nazis make their appearance you're like wait what nazis yeah, absolutely it's you know, weird, it, it, it really weird. caught me by surprise. And then they completely take over mm -hmm. the book, like the section where Dr. B is um, explaining his captivity intentionally goes on much longer than you initially think it's going to. Right. Because he's like, oh, let me tell you my story about chess. And you're like, oh, this is interesting. He's like, so when the Nazis took over, I was imprisoned. You're like, I'm sorry. And then it becomes this like the thing that it actually kept reminding me of in a weird way was um, Poe. Yeah. Yeah. In its fevered, like the fact that the, the, the fevered nature of the monologue feels very much like Poe to me that like you have the monologue of the fear fevered narrator who is just has this obsessive thing. And then the more they talk about it, the crazier they get over the course of telling you the story, like the mania re-enters yeah. through their telling of the story. It just that, I mean, it, it really is like the middle section of it is like a little horror short story. It is. Yeah. Yeah that's that's um that's better than than my oscar wilde or, or hans christian anderson um analogies because i think it's the poe is another writer who really is like here are the stakes here are the characters here are all of their most important and relevant qualities now let's just watch it play out and i think that this is one of the only stories um that Zweig has at least that i read um where it really goes off the rails. It doesn't at all fulfill the promise of the original. You know, it's like, it's not yeah. the story it sets itself out to be. And it's kind of shocking to read the yeah. way you said. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've only read like four or five of his novellas. I'm hardly a Zweig expert, right? But there is a yeah. way in which the other ones have a clearer contract with the reader set out. 
Yeah. That he then, you know, fulfills. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like within the first couple pages, you're pretty sure, you know, at least thematically what the territory is you're going to be covering. Exactly. And then he covers it, you know, like an interesting things happen. I mean, there are plot surprises and all sorts of other stuff, but like, there's not a sense that the story has like gone off in some weird direction that was completely unanticipated, you know? Yeah. I, um, hang on. I just wanted to, to take a look at my notes for a second. I think that that idea of the, the way that he's finally driven mad is by the game going too slowly. I just feel a lot of really visceral sympathy for him like I just think about yeah. him being in Brazil yeah. and feeling like, you know, the war is just going on and there's more anti-Semitism picking up in Brazil now. And it's like, he just can't right. wait any longer, but at the same time, can I ask you, Catherine? Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Can I, can I just ask you? Cause I remember when, when you texted me that you were reading it, you said that you actually like found the act of reading it disturbing enough that you Set it down and read a summary of the story and then went back to reading it. Could you just explain a little bit about what it was that was so upsetting for you that you actually felt like you couldn't keep reading the story? I mean, honestly, it was that it was that feeling. So, okay, I stopped reading when he was in the solitary confinement and he had the chess book. And I was like, I just need to know what's going to happen. Like, I cannot read another page of this. I can't even read another paragraph of this. I think I feel like uh, so unsettled by it because um, and it, and is it because in most like stories once the Nazis show up you know be, we ha- we know what the tropes are not that the tropes are necessarily bad right but we know what the tropes normally are when a Nazi shows up and you're like okay the story's going to go in one of these directions I have some confidence that I know that whereas in this one it's like because you didn't have those guideposts. I mean, you were like, yeah, oh, those are oh some fuck, good words. what's going to happen? Or <laughs> those are some good words to describe the experience I had. I just, it's that, that feeling that it was like outside of the tropes and that it was an adult who was talking about his experience that felt like it was not one of the experiences that has been exhaustively cataloged and described a thousand times. But I was like, oh, you're going to tell me something that is going to be deeply upsetting. And yeah. and then I was like, it just it had that feeling of like the last painting of Van Gogh, you know, the crows over the field where you're like, I don't like these crows. I don't like this field. Fuck off crows. Right. Well, and it's also interesting because the experience he's talking about is 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 basically his invention. I mean, the monarchists in, in Austria were carted off to concentration camps and shot, you know, I mean, they weren't put in hotel rooms in this like weird isolation of the mind thing, but yet there's something about that. How do I put this? Like, it's one of those things I, I, I'm I hate it when writers use this excuse, but in his case, it actually works where it's like not a factual truth, but a deeper truth. I think part of like the, what what he may be doing is he may have wanted to he may have felt like it you know he didn't want to trespass on other people's territory that's what i'm imagining like he wanted to convey some some horror but he wanted to con- 
he 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 didn't want to like he he did the thing of like writing what you know in this case maybe because right. it was so important yeah. that he knew what it was like and maybe that's why he needed the ship too because he needed a place that he knew how to describe which had you know endless sort of mundane like boredom and confinement and you know it was something that he was able to imagine he was able to imagine having and he knew he had a chess book that he used in order to stave off you know loneliness and depression and boredom um he knew how to do these things he knew how to write them and maybe because he could see through those things toward the portals of madness you know of actually being afraid that your unknown self was as as much in control as your known self and they could kind of switch back and forth like black and white or black to white like maybe that that sense is is what it, what's communicating itself even you know through translation and through the years that makes especially those those parts that that narration so compelling mm -hmm. and yeah. also so uh you know having that effect of, of not knowing what's happening next or not knowing what the tropes are just because like you know so much of that story doesn't really make sense uh not only isaac the fact that you know that b wouldn't have just been taken off and shot or put in a concentration camp but like like um his we don't really know if he gave up the goods or not and it's okay that he didn't give up the goods he just ends up in the hospital and then is set free yeah we don't know like, what happened make... about their their areas of inquiry into yeah he's not tortured for some reason you know well it, except it's, that it's, solitary it's, confinement is torture i mean that is right you know it, it, in and since we are in a country that inflicts that torture on a on a staggering number of people I, I think it is it is wild how perceptive Zweig is into um how brutal just confining someone sol you know to solitary is. Yeah. I mean, we don't know what his sort of what solitude felt like, especially in exile. Uh from what I've read, um, you know, even in the communities that he tried to set up in New York where there were plenty of exiles and plenty of german speakers and plenty of people who understood why he was uh so famous and why he'd been so popular even then there were there were there was something lacking uh in those communities some kind of um like a, a lack of well, i mean of course they all just lost their home maybe forever yeah. like of course it was haunted and dead um so i don't i have no you know i don't know anything about what that is like but he he finds a way to um to make to make it the way something my what my students would call relatable um just by <laughs> by accessing something that we all have you know experience of which is <laughs> being so bored you think you right. might go nuts um so i there's one part about um just because you mentioned depression in the the leo carry uh new yorker profile where it's like well you know, he was partly driven to suicide by the fascists, but also um, he did, he was already kind of suicidal in other parts of his life. Um, and I thought that was interesting. Like, even if you took that out and you just thought about this as like a depression story, um, mm -hmm. that that feeling of like playing against yourself um, to the point that you like lose your sense of self um it felt like like he could be all three of the characters of both sides of dr b's mind and also the onlooker 
that all of those are kind of like an experience of depression. <laughs> it, it's it's interesting too because I, I watched the uh, last year's German film of this today, and mm -hmm. uh, that film does a lot of remediation within my call it in in that way. Not only is he all three of those characters, but he's Chentovic as well. He's made the whole damn thing up. It's kind of the nature. Like the whole of being shipboard experience is just him trying to trying to yeah trying to reintegrate his mind huh. and and feeling. That's interesting. Wait, so tell us more about the German movie, because obviously I watched the trailer of it. I didn't watch the whole thing. It's in German. You watched it in Russian. Um, it it's interesting. I mean, it's it's probably it's definitely worth watching. I mean, it's real like it's real cinematic, um, and it's it's sort of like I mean, it does this thing where it it kind of does this sixth sense thing. Where all the stuff that later turns out to be fantasy is is really uh, like like almost um, uh, it, it's almost kitschily composed. It seems wrong, and then you realize that it was wrong. Um, but another piece of remediation they do is they 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 have the ship leaving from Holland and not New York, and so there's like the onboarding is definitely has the feel of um, escape. Interesting, and the whole and the it's it, you know it's an interesting imagination of the interior of the ship too, which is cramped and it looks like um, like Doctor B they call him Bartok in the movie is traveling third class, and so it's very easily he he like slips back into the prison cell without having seen anybody play chess on board at all. He kind of like walks into the tournament and at the end of the movie. You realize there may not have been a tournament at all, or there may not have been any um, chess going on on board at all, and he's. It was just the the circumstances of um like the the condition that he was in where he was actually allowed to escape and then finding himself back in confinement for the week at sea or whatever it was yeah you can win the first game but you lose and then the you know game. sorry yeah. <laughs> go on say what you were yeah say. i mean no it's but that's 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 interesting right because i i wonder what it i wonder what if he felt guilt at at not having been trapped in Europe, um, what that guilt might have felt like. Um, I mean, who knows, right? Or what what somebody like him would have felt that guilt like. But I just, you know, having read the story again and thought about it a little bit, it seems like to me anyway, I have a feeling that his his looking back to Europe with the kind of despair that he must have felt has something to do with the imagination of double-mindedness in um in B. There's something about like the darkness um being kind of another program that the self runs that may may actually be just as prime primary as the the self that, that you use to write with. And maybe this is something that happens to to all writers is you know so much of the the process of writing is navigating trying to channel that the second self and um trying to manage it but also not over managing it mm -hmm. and so really playing a game or playing that flipping game or at least imagining that you can play it i mean that does and i've never back to freud like the freudian the that idea of like a a self that is made up of different parts that are yeah not but the thing that what tell me 
Well, the thing that Freud seems so like comfortingly 19th century in this way, because he's like, well, there's this part which is in control. And if you can help the part that's in control integrate more of the part that it's fighting with, then you can actually have equilibrium. Whereas the situation that we see here, there's like black and white. I mean, one may move first, but that's the only advantage that one of them has. Um, if if it's like this bicameral mind, it's not one where you have any, there's no like handbook for integrating it. And it may not be able to be integrated. Like maybe integration is the thing that makes you go crazy in the first place. Like that's what right. makes him see checks that aren't there. Right. Because all he can do is spiral out into further oppositional conflicts. Yeah. Right? Like it's not like he's integrating. What he's doing is he's like, okay, then, you know, every possibility is expanding in front of him. Um, but I also think to get back to the kind of allegory aspect of it, that's less about the 20th century and more about the divided mind that you're talking about is that it is also important that Dr. B has never played an actual chess game. Yeah. Like part of the allegory that I find really funny and interesting and, and weird is, you know, they discover Dr. B because they're playing Chentovich in chess. And one of them is one of them is going to make a move. And Dr. B is like, Oh, you can't make that move. It's a disaster. And they, they're like, who is this odd, you know, this odd rumpled Columbo-esque dude who's walking among us. I don't know. And, uh, um, uh, and then, you I know, like it you turns have... out he has never actually played it. Um, Peter Falk. Dr. B is clearly yeah. Peter Falk. I mean, like, well, uh, let me, uh, let me uh, tell you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't move that piece. You shouldn't, you see, you gotta be smart. Um, but the, uh, Isaac, Isaac the, Peter Falk. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not me if I don't smuggle Peter Falk into it somehow, but no, but the, uh, but, you know, one of the things you learn is even though he's this brilliant thinker about chess and he's able to outwit Chentovich at first, et cetera, et cetera. And Chentovich only wins through gamesmanship. He does not win through skill at the actual game. He only wins through psychological gamesmanship. Um, that that uh, Dr. B has never actually faced a real-life human opponent other than himself yeah. in playing chess. It's like... Um... Another another aspect of that is, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't know when, how recently you've read uh, War and Peace, but do you remember the character of Prince Andre? Didn't Ion? we I just read, read it recently. together? Didn't we, Isaac, didn't we just read War and Peace? No. No. Who did we read War and Peace with? I swear, I just read War and Peace with it, was, it really wasn't me. Okay. He's a, he's, a central, he's a central character, Prince Andre, right? Yes. And one of the things that happens to him is that about a quarter of the way through the book, he's wounded at the Battle of Austerlitz. And he's brought home, and he recovers after a long convalescence. And then, um, blank, 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 you know, 75% more, 75 more of the book happens. But in early drafts, um, Tolstoy had him die in the battle. And there is a feeling, as you read War and Peace, that after he comes back from Austerlitz, he's never really the same again. And there, you know, there's a reading that he is acting, not that he's actually a ghost, but that he's like a ghost, that there's something he, that he actually did die the way that Tolstoy intended him to do in the first draft. And Tolstoy never found a way to really bring him back with the kind of life or livelihood that he needed to have. And he's pretty much impotent throughout the rest of the book. Um, That's like I, uh, Hamlet being two different ages at the same time, that Hamlet is both 18 and like 35. 40, yeah. Or forty that he ah. that 
the he the like uh Shakespeare originally wrote him to be 18, but then he had to change him for the actor. And so they're like, oh yeah, no, he's actually 40, but it's like he's both. It's like a like um uh two photos taken on the same film, you know? Like yeah, yeah. double exposure. Double exposure, yeah. So I, I feel like that's what you're describing with the the Prince Andre thing. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. But the reason that I was reminded of it here is that Dr. B is, he's, I mean, he functions like a, like a ghost. He can't, as soon as he enters the world and actually moves the pieces himself, he can't function. Like, yeah, and then yeah. at the end, he's like, okay, I got to go back to being a ghost. You know, I can't actually play anymore. And so he's like a walking, talking hauntedness. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing he does is apologize for his behavior, right? Isn't that the. I'm going to look. I beg your pardon for my stupid mistake. When I, what I said was of course, pure nonsense. It is naturally your match. Then he turned to us. I must also offer my apologies to you gentlemen, but I did warn you in advance not to expect too much of me. Please forgive the debacle. It was the last time I try my hand at chess. And then he bows and leaves. And you know, that's because in his mind, one of the matches he spun out, he has won, but Chentovich has actually won the material, like the actual real match. Chentovich has won, but Doctor B at first doesn't accept it because there's another alternate right. scenario that he spiraled out to where he has won, and then he realizes his mistake and he apologizes for his behavior and says, "I'll never play chess again," and and leaves. He returns to being a ghost, and then this narrator, <laughs> this great narrator, uh, a sentence later, the narrator says. Only I knew why this man would never again touch a chessboard. And then he never tells us what it is that he knows. It's like, right, right. it's made for German high school classes. So what does he know? What does he know? <laughs> what time? We'll get it out of him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, we were also, Lior, we were talking about um, other, like, chess in other, you know, uh stories movies books etc um and i think that there's something interesting about how chess operates in this that's not it's like there's you know an alice in wonderland story where she's dealing with chess and then there's like queen's gambit and uh searching for bobby fisher is another chess movie and then the um what was that one that we tried to watch and it was the, the one that's based on the that's the one that I was wondering about, Delusion Defense, Delusion which came out in 1928 in Russian. But I don't. I was wondering whether it was translated into German by the time, by the time like in Zweig's lifetime. But it wasn't. I don't think it was. I don't think until the 60s. Because it seems um, like there's there's plenty of them that involve the concept of people who play chess going mad, or that if you invest more in chess than in your personal life, it will lead to madness. Yeah. Um. Or that that logic itself, like, you know, the Lewis Carroll one, it's sort of like that investment in logic itself is a form of like self-delusion that you're, it's like you get deeper into a place where the truth is indistinguishable from a joke. Mm -hmm. If you spend too much time in logic, yeah, like real life is something that you only know because you sort of practice it habitually. Um, not because it makes sense. Um, from a logical standpoint, but then there's more movies that are newer that are kind of more like they're just sports movies where chess is the sport, you know? Um, but I just don't know that chess operates quite how it does 
in this where like the madness in this case is continuing to do the thing that saved your life. Like it saves his life when he's in solitary confinement to think about chess. And then the form of madness is that he continues it beyond the point that it's healthy to keep thinking about chess. Right. Like, I I just don't know that we actually have other stories where chess operates like that. Does that seem right to you? So it's like, it's like you need, if you have a, a little bit of heroin, it's okay. You know, if you do heroin once in a while, it's fine. But well, uh, yeah, like if you take it like opiates as painkiller and you get through the injury, but then you keep taking them, then it's a problem. Right. I feel like it. Oh, so if, if I understand it right. Um, so he's, he's the, when he, when he discovers that book, when he steals the book, he's already pushed to his limits. He's about to give up the information. And so something, you know, his mind is like on the verge of, he feels that it's on the verge of collapsing. And then chess gives his mind a different way to leave itself. Like there's a, it's like he, you kind of, it gives him a chance to, to have his psychosis rather than the one that is going to be imposed on him. And it makes sense that like what he found there wasn't a remedy. It wasn't sanity or anything like that. Um, but it was a different kind of, a different kind of sickness. Yeah. I don't know what that yeah. says about whether it had to be chess. I mean, he wasn't a chess player before he found that book. It's interesting too, because I was just I was I was looking at delusion defense, and um, you know, in, in there's a lot of there's a lot of biographical time spent in that book uh, before Lusion, the boy discovers chess, where you see a personality that is that is going to need chess in order to function in the world, like a personality that's obsessed with. Um, determinism and uh uh kind of and kind of like um you know uh ge geometrical logic and that is not just fascinated but finds itself dependent on um correspondences in the abstract being able to plan things in the abstract that actually somehow match up in the real world you know like the way that a lot of like i certainly felt in like ninth grade physics like oh my god mm -hmm. these things actually work <laughs> right um so you know chess if he hadn't found on chess, he, he would still have been um, an, a kind of an, an outcast. Um, chess allows him to be a rich outcast. <laughs> right. All right. I cut Leor off before I finished the point he was making there. The other half of it is that there's no sign that Dr. B had a good personality for chess or any um, talent or a psychological need for it other than the situation that he was forced into. Um, the day after we recorded this, Lior also found some information um, about Zweig's life. Um, and we thought about recording a coda, but it doesn't significantly change our interpretations of the story. Uh, mostly it just uh, filled in more about Zweig's efforts to get tickets and traveling papers for more people to escape Europe during his years in Brazil. So while he was writing this story, um, this kind of seems like an echo of the idea of the chess game with a remote opponent um, that he's like writing letters and trying to send money and um, get people out. Um, and then also he was extremely isolated while he was in Brazil. Um, I think more than we realized when we recorded that um, he didn't really speak to anyone outside his household for years, um, uh, which resonates. It resonates with the descriptions of Dr. B's solitary confinement. Um, he could have had more 
contact with Brazilian intellectuals. Uh, he didn't seem interested, um, and maybe he was too occupied with the things that were going on in Europe. Or maybe he was just too sad to start over in a new place. It's a really sad story. Um, it was a really good story, though. I'm glad I read it. I hope you guys all read it. And that is the end of our episode. Thank you so much to Lior and Isaac and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. As always, we love to hear from listeners. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and goodbye till next month. <laughs>